Hello and welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast for people who are curious about how to have a more fulfilling work life. We live in a world largely driven by numbers, logic and reason. But how we feel at work and about our work impacts us, our organisations and society. There is a relationship between the numbers of our organisations and the life beyond the numbers. I'm Susan Michrielon, your host. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. But one thing that I've learned that is common to us all is that we are all unique and have unique experiences. And it's helpful to know that there are others who think like we do, or have had struggles too, or have gone where we want to go, or can show us things we didn't know. So join me and my guests as we place a lens on the human side of work life by sharing insights, stories and strategies to inspire you to let your uniqueness shine. Welcome to episode 148 of Life Beyond the Numbers. This episode is going out on Saturday, October 14th, 2023. For those of you who listen on a regular or weekly basis even, you may have noticed there was no episode last week. And I did mean to say that on the episodes that went out on September 30th, that there wouldn't be an episode that first weekend in October. And in fact, through October and November, I will only put an episode out every two weeks. And the reason for that is I am back in the writing process again. I've had the feedback from the editor and publisher, and now I need to rewrite some stuff and (laughs) turn it into a book. It's really exciting, a little bit terrifying as well at this stage. I will be very focused on that throughout the month of October. This week is an episode from a webinar that David Lee and I did earlier in the year. And some of you will remember David Lee from an earlier episode. We recorded episode 102 together. And David Lee, Dr. Suzanne Evans and I have done a couple of episodes as well. And this episode is very much a deep dive into communication and conversations and the need for open and honest communication. And sometimes the difficulties we have, the difficult for you conversations a conversation in itself is never really difficult, but it can be difficult for us to have certain conversations. And we talk about psychological safety. We talk about polyvagal theory in the nervous system and about how to have safe and respectful conversations. So I hope you enjoy. There's a lot of personal insights and stories in this conversation shared by both David and I. So we're going to kind of riff about uh, constructive conversations, creative, courageous conversations, psychological safety, et cetera. 
we've already had a really rousing conversation before we started recording. So let the games continue. So how about if we start off with our question about like, why do you care about this topic so much? I suppose I feel like there is so much stuff that gets left unsaid, that we waste time and effort and resources and money and all of that in our organizations and outside of working life as well in our own lives by sidestepping things or talking around things or assuming that other people understand us when we speak and often having a conversation that feels like it's going to be challenging it is so because it seems like it's going to be difficult for us and we start to think about it and we start to obsess about it and we start to worry about it and then we start to avoid it and then we start to avoid the person and then we start to avoid the work and before you know it we have created a mountain out of what well might have been a molehill it's so refreshing I suppose to be honest and open and allowing yourself the possibility that maybe this conversation will be constructive yet not challenging and you'll never know until you give it a go i love it and that rhymes too you never know until you give it a go <laughs> a couple of different things so i i think after all these years of really working in this area they're still challenging, difficult conversations by definition are difficult, but the relationship, just like in anything in life between skill level and how much courage it takes, the more skill, the less courage you have to summons. So you don't have to wait until like you've had it up to here and then spout off in an unproductive way. And so for me, the passion for this is both like very much personal as well as professional and personal in the sense of being somebody who like in the big five is high on agreeableness, not a big fan of disharmony and conflict. So like, don't want to bring up this difficult topic, but also the flip side, witnessing and experiencing all that angst and emotional pain and turmoil when we don't bring up the things that need to be talked about. And I think anybody listening or watching can think of all kinds of scenarios where they didn't feel like the conversation would go well, so they didn't bring it up. And then they have all that stress, anger, resentment, hurt, et cetera, that might be like totally cleared away if they just had the conversation. Absolutely. That's it, isn't it? I really like what you said, actually, about the more skill, the less courage you need, because in the beginning, you certainly need courage. And if you don't wonder maybe what this conversation is going to be like and don't think about the other person and put yourself in their shoes as much as you can before you go into a room, then you're not coming at it from a human perspective. And I think there's something very human 
about two people sitting across the table from one another or walking alongside or sitting in a car, whatever it might be, and entering into a conversation that can go in so many different directions and wanting to feel safe and keep yourself safe, but also be open to what emerges because we're co-creating them. It's a conversation that's in motion, probably with emotion as well, but there's something very powerful about that because if you left unsaid or we're on repeat, just saying the same things over and over again, expecting a different outcome, then we never really grow and learn. We might see it as an obstacle or a barrier or whatever, but actually the growth is on the other side. The skill is on the other side. The practice is what brings the courage. That's what I would say. And that first time is is going to be scary. And maybe every time is a little bit scary, but that's okay too. Yeah. And again, back to where the, the skills comes in that at least from personal experience, yeah, there's still scary and there's hope that it can have a positive outcome. I love a couple of things you said I loved. So it's co-created and that's such an important thing for, I think every, for all of us to keep in mind is it's like we had talked about David White before we started recording. And I love when he talks about the conversational nature of reality. And, and he says, you don't have to change. You just have to have the conversation. And out of that conversation comes the change. And, and so having that openness and curiosity, like, I don't know where this is going to go. And let's work together to create something wonderful. I think the other thing that when you talked about the co-creation, it made me think about how anybody who has brought up a difficult issue with a close friend and like, oh, is this going to be the end of the friendship? But you were brave enough to bring it up and how it ends up bringing you closer together because there is that deeper, more real connection. Mm. And it doesn't mean it's not going to be scary. I think that's the thing. (laughs) And the other thing I would say is, is silence, David. We're often afraid of silence. And especially in a conversation like that, where I might be sitting clenched and I might be feeling those butterflies in my stomach or my heart might be racing or my palms are sweating. And if the other person becomes silent, I'll immediately rush to fill that vacuum or that silence. And actually what I learned was there's huge power in allowing silence in a conversation that is challenging because it's processing time, it's thinking time. And there's this amazing study of doctors, I can't remember who did it, but it's one of the universities in the States. And a doctor 
will interrupt a patient something I can't remember the times now but it's something like after 11 seconds or 12 seconds to give their diagnosis and if they would only wait another seven seconds the patient would give them enough information that they could actually get it right first time <laughs> and I think we tend to rush in especially if we're feeling impatient or we just want to get through it or we want to get to the next thing if you're going to go into a conversation that you feel is going to be either difficult for you or you're going to have to summon courage or be brave or whatever you have to allow time for that you have to allow that you're not going to be squeezed in an hour because it might take longer so that you can afford the other person silence and respect and whatever they need as well and it might be over like that but it might also take some time and it isn't just about you that's what I always think and the improv guys talk about how when you're on stage doing improv the most important person on stage is the other person and you're always setting up with the other person in mind. So when you finish with your improv line, you do it in a way that they can build from you. And you do it in a way that makes them look good. I think it's the same when it comes to these conversations that you need to do it in a way that allows the person to build and co-create. And if silence is what they need, that that's what they take. And also allows them to look good and feel good because the worst any of us will feel is if we're under attack. I love it. What a great analogy. So two things come to mind. And then I've got a story about a really tough conversation that deepened a friendship. And if you want to be thinking about, that would be awesome too. So how do you set up the other person? So in some ways it's like, the corollary, like how can you, quote, set up the other person to feel safe, to feel invited into a conversation versus the recipient of a diatribe or a good scolding, and and how that also speaks to some of the stuff we talked about before recording, like how do we make sure we get into an emotional slash physiological state before the conversation, so we can enter into it in an inviting, compassionate way versus an antagonistic way that triggers the same in them. I hadn't thought of sharing this story, but something you said reminded, oh, the co-creating. So one of my favorite examples of why it's worth it happened like 15 or more years ago with a new friend. And so we met in a business context and I really liked him and I invited him to a, an association meeting. The meeting was structured was a little on the weird side. It was a group of consultants and you, you had like 30 seconds to stand up and introduce yourself. It seemed like the ethos there was who could do the cleverest self-intro and, and so it was dueling cleverness. So when my friend stands up, he goes, David Lee lied to me. He told me that you guys would do a hazing 
with me. And I can see that's not true. <laughs> what? Yeah. Besides this being a really dumb thing to say, I also like a real strong value of mine is what I think of as being honorable. And it's like, you never use somebody else as a way to ingratiate yourself to another person, especially somebody you claim as your friend. So I was so mad. And I I found myself thinking, like, I don't want to be around him if this is how he is. And I was really ready to just like enough. But I'm like, you know, that was like one time. I've seen some other examples of immature humor, but on the balance of the scales was was way more in the positive. Well, wouldn't you know, the next time we go to the meeting, he does the same thing. I, I can't believe this. So I found myself, I could be a real ruminator, like really ruminating over, do I bring it up? Do I just write him off? And I'm like, no, your old way, your wounded way of dealing with that sort of thing is like, they've showed me who they are, forget it kind of thing. It's like, no, you need to practice giving somebody the benefit of the doubt. And the answer to whether this is a relationship you want to continue with or not, back to the co-creation, it will emerge from the conversation. And so as we oftentimes do, I played out a bunch of like doomsday scenarios, like how he'll just like blow me off. Like, oh, come on. I'm just kidding. Like classic guy thing to do. So, but it's like, no, just give him the benefit of the doubt. It's worth it. If for no other reason, just to have the practice of having this challenging conversation that feels really awkward. I'm feeling really vulnerable. And so I brought it up to him and I, you know, it's been so long. I don't obviously remember exactly what I said, but I think I said something like, Hey, I was curious in the two meetings that we went. And when you said, blah, 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 I was wondering like, what was up with that? And I said, just as simple, like no, no fancy former therapist jargon or anything, to yeah. us, you know, like ordinary human to ordinary human. And I'm waiting for him to like come up with some defense. And he goes, you're right. I threw you under the bus. And he said, it's a throwback from when I was a kid and I was a class clown to deal with my, my anxiety. And even as I was saying, I knew that was like a uncool thing to say, I'm sorry. And I'm just like, I am so thankful I brought it up. It like dialed up my respect for him, you know, incredibly and obviously brought us closer together. And we've both referenced that as a real like pivotal moment in our friendship. Yeah. And you may have cut him out of your life. Yeah. The old me who didn't believe it it could possibly have a positive outcome. It's like, don't even bother. It's just going to be a horror show. You think about for most of, especially the male culture, like as a boy or young man, you never ever admit anybody got under your skin or hurt your feelings because you could look forward to that, whatever that was the rest of your life. And so you just learn to either toughen up 
which has all kinds of other negative effects. And as part of that, and this is something that I I think is such a huge consequence of people not knowing how to be psychologically safe is, and, and maybe you can relate to this. I know as somebody who's like a, a really sensitive personality, how I would deal with people like that is I would just make them less important to me. It's like, you no longer matter to me. And, and that was like the only way I could not feel stung or hurt by the mean stuff they said. And you think about how that happens in one-on-one in -on -one or like the primary relationship, if somebody's coupled, like how oftentimes that happens in marriages, couples, et cetera, let alone boss mistreats you, disrespects you. It's like, you know what? I don't want to feel hurt day in and day out. So F you, like, I don't care about pleasing you. I don't care what your opinion is, et cetera. I went on a rant, like, I'd love to hear either your example of a like strength or anything. Yeah. Yeah. And what I was going to pick up on from what you said is, and I think this is something that's really difficult to do. And it's something I'm still practicing is separating the behavior from the person. Because in a way, what you identified there was his behavior or he did. He told you, well, this is how, what a throwback from when I was a kid. That was his wounded self. Just like your wounded self behavior would have been to shut the person out. And it's this, like, how am I responding? So how is that person? It's not who they are. It's how they're responding. And that is a hard concept to grasp but it is worth it. And I remember somebody who said something to me that just really threw me off. And I really struggled to separate the behavior from the person that time. And I was only kind of been introduced to the concept and I just couldn't get beyond the behavior. It was really interesting and I still struggle now. I have a better clue now, but at the time there's one thing that really hurt me that I realized I couldn't separate that behavior from the person. So she was the person who did X. That was how she was rather than actually, what was this in relation to? So I never resolved that one, David, but I do have an earlier story. And actually, before we get to the story, can I address your point? Because it's, I think it's such an important point. To me, there's sort of like, there's two kind of almost like opposing perspectives on it. Do you know the term fundamental attribution error? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So for people who don't know that, it's just such a amusing, humbling phenomenon. So fundamental attribution error by human nature. We're like hardwired to uh, come up with some sort of attribution for why somebody said or did something. So some kind of explanation. And so the fundamental attribution error is we typically, when we're behaving badly, you know, when we make some unpleasant response, we attribute it to the situation. Like we were stressed out or we didn't really think it through, whatever. Yet when somebody else is behaving badly, we attribute it to some enduring personality flaw. And so 
a simple practice is to give people the same slack we give ourselves. So don't make that fundamental attribution error. And that's one of the things also, it's fascinating in the research around behavior change and some of the stuff we've talked about in the past about like, how do you get yourself to do things that you need to do is one of the big themes with, with positive habit experts is create an environment that makes it easier to do the right thing versus the wrong thing. And like never underestimate the power of context, the power of situation. So on one hand, there's that, let's give people slack, the same amount of slack we give ourselves. The others like opposing position. And I think it's a conversation between the two is like that Maya Angelou quote, when people show you who they are, believe them. It's listen to like notice the red flags or maybe they're just a yellow flag, but don't tamp down that awareness. And so it's the conversation between give them slack and pay attention to the warning signs. So, yeah. yeah. Ask like you did. I think that's the thing. It is very easy for us to make assumptions and assume makes an ass out of you and an ass out of me and we just tend to do that and like you said we make meaning out of things we look for meaning we want an explanation and we've settled for what our brain or our mind tells us whether that's true or not we don't really always stop to ask that question going back to a work one and it's probably about 15 or 16 years ago this and I was a director in an organization and I came to work one morning and one of my direct reports was still there from the previous day. Yeah. And like that is not the type of ship that I was running. As far as I'm concerned, everybody needed to go home and rest and have sleep and be away at least for 12 hours. And this person was an adult as well so they also have to take some personal responsibility for what their role in this was but that pressure was not coming from me to be in the office you know for 24 hours so I sent the person home because it was the only thing to do and at that stage they were barely coherent anyway (laughs) because they'd worked through the night And then they came in to work the next day and we said we would go for lunch to have a chat because they were also coming towards the end of their probation and they wanted to have a talk about their future. And this person was older than me. And so I also thought they're more experienced. They're going to think I'm crap at this job. It's all my fault. All of these. I had all of these things going on in my head. And I went out of the office, which I always think is a great thing to do with people is to leave the office that environment where you might be overheard as well and we went for lunch and this person said to me well as it's coming up to probation how do you think I'm getting on and I could feel I still feel like the temperature rising internally because I'm ready to just go (laughs) like and I stopped myself and I said How do you think you're getting on? And the person began to answer. And by the end of that, whatever, five minute 
monologue, pretty much, the person had worked out that this job wasn't for them. It was fascinating and they wanted a few days to think about it, but they just believed that actually they weren't in the right place to be in the job and they weren't coping with the stress. It wasn't the right time and all of that. And they decided to leave. It was the right decision from my perspective as well, because they weren't coping with everything. And it certainly wasn't the environment that I was creating. And it was so interesting to me because if I had answered that question, I'd probably still be working with that person. <laughs> you know, it would never have ended up that way. But I think we instinctively know what's good for us and what we need as well. And sometimes we just need people to give us that space to speak our truth. I hope that what I had done was there was enough psychological safety between us so that when he this person did start to speak, they were able to say what was really on their mind and how they were feeling about the job. Need. Are you able to identify other things that you do to increase the odds that somebody feels safe enough to be really open, vulnerable, candid, et cetera? Like for me, I just think it's the simple stuff, David. It's it's being a, a person, being a human, not being defensive not going in with the answer already made out so back to the co-creation because when I'm open to wherever a conversation goes then I'm also going to go into that conversation with curiosity and I'm not going to be listening for where they're trying to blame me or where they're trying to attack me or anything like that over the years, I've had to let a lot of people go. I've had to do disciplinaries, conduct investigations. And a lot of it has been really quite stressful. And I always made sure that I was showing calm outwardly in as much as I could. And if it got too much to stop it and take a break. And I think that was the thing for me. And there have been occasions, I mean, I did storm out of a room one time. <laughs> My boss had to come after me because I was being attacked by a, a European auditor for anti-fraud. I mean, it was like being in a Kafka novel. But the the emotion in the room and the, the aggression and the, the situation became so much that I just couldn't take it any longer and I couldn't work with my words. And I just got up and I remember walking out of the room and my boss coming after me saying, you need to come back in, we need to finish this. But that was different. I mean, I think I was actually being attacked. So it's interesting, isn't it? Maybe it depends on which side of the conversation you're on. If you're the one initiating a conversation, you know what you're going into and you know how to prepare yourself. If the other person doesn't see what's coming or they're not expecting the conversation to go a certain way, or if that's you who goes into a conversation expecting to hear about getting a promotion and you get fired, 
you will react differently, won't you? I always think it's about speaking person to person, human to human. It's not about position. It's not about status. It's not about any of that. It's about being down to earth and making the conversation as easy as possible for everyone involved. And being warm, if you go into a conversation that's challenging and you're like sitting upright and trying to hide your nervousness, <laughs> the other person just gonna be on high alert. It's going to change the dynamic immediately. Whereas if you can go in, I always think get straight to the point, no point in beating around the bush, let it out, say what it is, say it clearly, repeat it, all of that. But do it as compassionately, even before I probably knew what that word was, but do it as, as, as if it was you as well. This is how, if it was happening to me, I would like to be spoken to. And I know we say it's better to treat the other person as they would want to be treated. But at times, I think any of us going through a difficult conversation would probably want to be treated with dignity, with respect, with compassion, with kindness, and those kind of traits that are so important and get dismissed too easily. And we think we need to go in and we need to get our point across and be angry or strict or something. And no, it just doesn't work. And we're adults as well. I think that's the thing. This is not school where the headmaster is giving you a telling off or it's not family where the parent is giving you a telling off. We're adults. And the other thing I'd say is you never know, ever when you're going to meet that person again. Under yeah. what circumstances? Yeah, yeah. You screw yeah. that up. Yeah, that's whoa, whoa, whoa. So a couple of things they said that I want to connect up with. So you're being attacked and storming out of the room. That's a great example. Like for all of us to remind ourselves examples when we felt unfairly accused or attacked in some way and how virtually impossible it is to conduct a constructive conversation. So when we remember how hard it is for us, it hopefully is a good reminder of why we want to begin the conversation in a emotionally safe, psychologically safe way as possible because of what lack of safety does to the nervous system. I think another thing a couple of things that you said that it really connected with was about like, if the person doesn't know what the conversation is about, where it's going, or they're stunned, like I thought it was going to be this and it's that, and that, and how shock oftentimes triggers shame. Like, I feel exposed. I didn't see that one coming. And what it makes me think about is how important it is to help people feel as much positive control as possible so it doesn't trigger that hardwired terror about being helpless because the human brain designed for caveman cavewoman days if you're helpless you're soon to be dead so 
helping the person feel that, as you said, like the sense of dignity and my voice is heard and the person's facial expression shows that they're interested in what I'm saying and they're tracking as opposed to they're disinterested. And I think also the really important point about this isn't school where you're getting scolded by the principal or scolded by mom and dad and how important it is in an adult to adult world to not slip into the parent child or teacher child scolding, as you said, strict, stern, and how that just triggers an understandable defensive and antagonistic response. So the flip side being like, how can I communicate, quote, cues of safety? So the nervous system picks up like, it's okay. <laughs> You're in a safe place here. You're not under attack. Hey, let's talk. And I don't know if, if I ever shared this with you in other conversations, but one of the, and if you all, we can like dive into polyvagal theory. One of the terms that I ended up coming up with in terms of ventral, the ventral vagal pathway is it enables us to be cool, calm, and connected as opposed to, I don't know if you've got that cool, common, collected saying in the UK and the yeah, States yeah. that, and it's like in ventral Vegas is when, when we're able to have a cool head and also feel that human to human connection, as opposed to the other two systems where you're the enemy, I've got to fight you or you're the enemy. I've got to shell up and, and just shut down and wait for the beating to end. Mm, and that is tough i think that's the thing it's not to underestimate that remaining cool calm and connected takes from you as well you have to prepare your system your body your nervous system for that you have to watch that while you're in this meeting also you have to be very conscious of your state throughout because if you start reacting rather than responding to what's in front of you then the whole thing can get deteriorate very very quickly and knowing that i'm going to feel uncomfortable and this is not going to be comfortable necessarily for me yes I'm the one that's sitting here giving the bad news or being the baddie or whatever but I'm doing that in the best way I can for the other person which means I have to show up at my best and I have to remain at my best throughout regardless of whether I'd rather run away or not <laughs> And I do think there's a tension there that, again, that is where the growth comes from. And what you said earlier about that skill, when you grow that skill, you need less courage. I think the day that you don't feel anything at all, David, is the day you're no longer human. It's the day you're going to make mistakes. It's the day you're going to say something that really is wrong and you'll likely end up in court or something like that. So I do think that having being aware of your inner sensations, quietening those voices that are telling you to flee and run away and telling them that you can handle this 
is not to be underestimated. And that is why we have so many conversations that get left unsaid and things that get left undone and bullying and undermining and micromanagement and all of these terrible things disengaged employees in workplaces. I think a lot of it has to do with us not knowing the difference between feeling unsafe and feeling discomfort that we always don't know the difference between those two things. And feeling unsafe is going to turn us into fight or flight. There's no doubt about that. But knowing that there's a difference and it's I'm uncomfortable or there's discomfort allows us to remain composed and not like be a pushover that's not it at all actually you're composed and courageous and that builds courage and confidence and competence so that you can do it again and again and like I used to volunteer almost to have these conversations at times with people because I knew that I could do it in a way that put the other person first and I knew that other people didn't always know how to treat people with dignity and respect in a room. Me, it, and when you said you used to volunteer, I immediately thought you're going to say, because I wanted more practice. <laughs> it speaks to like one of the reasons for, for having it. And that's why I've had some challenging conversations with people like I knew I would never see again. It's like, it'll just give me practice. But how cool that you did it because you knew you could be really humane about it. Boy, there are several things that you said that I really wanted to connect with because I think they're so important. So the last one out will be the first one that I respond to is not to confuse feeling unsafe with feeling discomfort. I was working with a leadership team where the HR person was concerned about how the concept of psychological safety was being misused in the organization. It's like, I don't feel comfortable talking with you. Therefore, you're psychologically unsafe. It's like, no, maybe it's my issues. So being able to sort out like what's my stuff and, and what's maybe their style. Boy, I have to really underline the the piece that you talked about in terms of managing your own emotional state that developing the skills of emotional self-regulation, so important. To be honest, that's a real growing edge for me. It's like, I feel like I'm really good at doing my work ahead of time to start the conversation in a very compassionate, caring, safe way. I still at times wrestle with being triggered if I experience somebody as being like really mean or bullying. Fortunately, it's very rare I have to encounter that kind of person, but I have such an aversion to it. I could just feel the temper rising. And so the two things that I think about that I like still working, well, three things. One is meditation. So I know you know this, but for listeners or viewers, the more we meditate, the more it strengthens our prefrontal lobe. So the more we're able to, to have emotional self-regulation. But in the moment, two things that I find 
useful. And if, if you've got some of your personal faves that you want to add, it'd be great is it's not so much if I'm feeling upset, but if I'm feeling really intense and I'm metaphorically leaning in to really advocate for my position, I will either metaphorically or literally lean back and then do a reality check, like a paraphrase reality check. I'll say, I want to make sure I'm getting what you're saying right. And sometimes I, I might say, I get the feeling I'm trying to do too much convincing and not enough understanding. I want to make sure I'm getting you. And then I'll paraphrase to see if I'm getting them. Not only does it obviously help them get it, like I do care about what they're saying. And if I paraphrase right, I do understand. It also changes my energy from convincing to being receptive. So that's one thing. The other thing that I still work on is I love Pema Chodron's Don't Bite the Hook. Yeah, it's, oh my God, is it so good? I'd recommend listening to the audio version, Pema, Buddhist teacher. And so she talks about not giving in to the desire to discharge that hot, prickly, angry energy by spouting off at the person. And and it's like, oh man, I know what she's talking about because you can feel it, the tension rising, the anger, and literally like you're getting hot and it feels good in the moment to just blast the person. Even if it's like a, a very smooth, snarky remark or just a full on blast them, it might feel good in that very moment. But like you say, you never know when you'll see them again. And Again, I know you know this, each time we do that, we just strengthen that as a reflexive reaction and we become less able to emotionally self-regulate. So that's the other one that I still work on is don't indulge yourself in that witty retort or just going off on the person because you're not going to take that. So what are some of the things you've had probably way more really tough workplace conversations. Like what are some of the other things that you do to emotionally self-regulate and not get caught up in that reflexive reactive mode? Looking back, one of the things I always sat quietly somewhere on my own, preparing mentally, physically for the conversation. So probably the hour beforehand, I wouldn't speak to anyone and people would know it. I remember one time being in Sri Lanka and I had three disciplinary hearings and I had listened to them and now I was giving my verdict. And like Even though it wasn't a court, it was kind of like that. And I was just so uptight about it. And... I remember I had a colleague out from the UK where I was based at the time and the colleague came up to me and just wouldn't look at me and went, I'll leave you. You know, <laughs> I didn't even have to look up. <laughs> this colleague just knew that I was in that zone. And I think there is something about sitting with what's going on, sitting with the discomfort, sitting with the uncertainty and reassuring you that you've got this, that you could do this. So I don't really know exactly what it was I did. And I certainly wasn't conscious of polyvagal theory or any of those things. It was just, I knew I had to be prepared and that was it. 
getting good at being comfortable with uncertainty in whatever way you can do that. And nothing is certain, first of all, like nothing. We go fool ourselves that things are certain and that we know what's going to happen, but nothing is certain. And I think every time you go through something, looking back at it and going, well, what did I learn about myself through that new situation that if I had known I was going into it, may have avoided it. Whereas actually I've come out the other side and there's been growth in it and learning and maybe I failed, but there's still growth and learning. And so always reflecting on something you went through and taking what works and and trying to then focus on leaving behind what isn't serving. I talked about the silence and I cannot emphasize that enough to leave space between when you think a person has stopped speaking to the next time you speak leave conscious silence yourself and then ask is there anything else would you like to say anything else can I repeat anything for you because I found that people don't process I mean I learned this the hard way that people just weren't they're going to shock and even if shock doesn't bring shame which it may well do it'll bring something and people might only hear the first two or three words and not the rest of the sentence you'll hear about that when you're in with medical doctors and they're giving bad news that's why they ask you to bring someone with you because people often don't hear beyond the diagnosis and the doctor comes out with all of this stuff you know and over your head completely because you didn't hear it and then the doctor's on to the next patient and I think it's the same with any of us if we get a shock we get tunnel vision and we focus on the words that we heard and then we miss everything around it And so that's important as well is to ask if they understood to even repeat back, like you said. And then I think the other thing, if you get an email, because I still get emails that trigger me at times, you know, and and just like all the work you do. And then you're like, (laughs) I can't believe I just got this email and I feel like this, what's going on? But I would always wait. And I used to do this at work. And it was one of the things I always told other people, always wait 24 hours before responding when something really irritates or aggravates you. Write your response if you like, just don't press send, leave it in draft and you come in in the morning and you go, oh my God, I can't believe I was going to send that. And you don't, and you remain with dignity as well. (laughs) And often I think the things in writing can be read in so many different ways. And yeah, that's, you often have to check for what people meant when they write something because they may not mean the way you read it. And you'll put your own tone of voice on it. You'll do so many things to it to help give you that story that you've created in your head. Absolutely. Yeah, it's such um, a yeah. non-info rich medium compared to voice tone, facial expressions. I do have an example of where I have found doing an email has been helpful. And I'd like to share that. Before I do, though, we've talked a little, we've mentioned polyvagal theory a little bit. If you want to talk after I I say my 
few comments in response to you. If you want to talk about the whole cues of safety thing, because that's so foundational to the stuff we're talking about. Okay, I'll do the email thing. And then there's something way back earlier to something you said. One of the things that I've I've sort of amended, I used to be pretty hardcore about never have a conversation about anything difficult through email. And I still feel that way. But the way I've amended it, at least I've found at times to be helpful is, and it goes back to when you said about person being shocked. If I'm afraid that me bringing up the issue in person will be so out of the blue that they'll be shocked and maybe have a shame attack, then what I've done, it's probably like a handful or less times in my life is I will do like a preamble email that lets them know the topic. Also to your point about the language, I strip out any advocating for my position or anything like that. It's just, I'd love to talk to you about this thing. So there's no adjudicating it through email. It's just don't surprise neutral. One of the things back to when we were talking about being willing to talk about the difficult stuff with a friend. It reminds me of a really great podcast interview I just heard with Terry Real, who's a, a family therapist in the States who wrote a great book, at least I've heard it's great, <laughs> called I Don't Want to Talk About, about Male Depression. And then a more recent one called, I'm blanking on the name, I think it might be Fierce Intimacy or maybe I'm anyway, Terry real R E A L. And one of the things that he talked about made me have a flashback back to the early days when I was a therapist was he was talking about the, I don't want to say life cycle, but a couple of chapters in relationships that endure are harmony, then disharmony and rupture, then repair of the rupture. And I, I love that he said that because I had forgotten about that term about repairing the rupture in the relationship. And when we have an experience or two of seeing that work, we're way more willing to suck it up, have the courage to bring it up in the future because we know how awesome it is on the other side of that. And so. it's hopeful, isn't it? That's yeah. What, uh, yeah. One of my podcast guest, Carrie Cullen, would say that she finds polyvagal to be very hopeful that there is repair after rupture in relationships. And it doesn't have to be the end game. It leaves it open. The other thing is conflict or constructive, challenging, difficult, whatever you want to call it. I think it's Margaret Heffernan would say that it's a thinking tool. Also, if you think of it as, as a way to get thinking and you get really good at it because you have to remain calm and composed, then you're going to think very constructively yourself about how to go through that and make sure you're in a state of repair and not rupturing it further. You got so cues of safety. Well, hopefully, if, if you've been watching this, you might have noticed some of them throughout our conversation. And if you haven't, I'm going to talk about a couple of them now, because David and I have kept eye contact 
pretty much throughout this whole conversation, I would say. Yeah, of course, we've looked down and made notes and things like that. But mostly we are looking at each other. We're smiling at one another. We're nodding. So it, it feels like I can say anything. And David's inviting that from me because he's regulating with me. He makes me feel safe or I feel safe in his presence because he is present. He's very present to the conversation. And at times I will tilt my head to one side because that's also a sign that this is a safe place. I don't do these things consciously. I'm doing them throughout the conversation, probably because I've worked on them over the years. And I use my hands a lot. Sometimes I think people find that distracting. <laughs> but it's also the way that shows I'm not always sure of what I'm saying myself, that I'm almost thinking and drawing out the words as I speak. And while I'm not saying that consciously either, our nervous systems and our human to human connection inherently knows this or innately knows this, that 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 using our hands is a way it's like we're drawing out the words from inside and, and from our heart. And I think it's so, yeah, th there are some of the things smiling is is massive. I mean, genuinely smiling because we know immediately if, if the smile is fake. I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we use the word authentic i prefer the word genuine i think genuine sounds a lot more down to earth and like something we can achieve whereas authentic sounds like i have to do something to get there so just be genuine and respond to what's coming to you and if i think as well if there's aggression or angst or whatever it is coming towards you remaining calm and composed and strong will help someone feel calmer will help their nervous system slow down if you tell them to calm down <laughs> that's not going to help them and in fact if you're telling someone to calm down I think it's Lisa Feldman Barrett that says this that what she thinks you're doing is you need to calm down. Yeah. So you're feeling kind of rushed and out of control. So you tell the other person to calm down, hoping that that will help you calm down as well. But it's your need. And I think if you need it, then it is time to take a break in that conversation. Because to get through the conversation, one person has to remain calm, composed. What did you say? Cool, calm, and connected. Yeah. Did I leave some out? I'm sure there, I left there some are out. There a few extra thoughts that I have that I'll add. And yeah, when you talked about the, you need to calm down, that I think one of the major reasons, at least in the workplace that I see where managers that I'm working with don't want to bring up difficult issues is their understandable discomfort with somebody else's strong, painful emotions. It's again, like what you said, if it gets to the point where you don't really care, then you're no longer a human kind of thing. It's like part of being human is caring. And also different nervous systems are more sensitive to upset feelings with others. 
I think one thing I do want to say, and also about cues of safety, and I actually, wherever I post this, I'll have a link to the article and I'll send you a link. I just, did I ever send you the link to the article that I did for psychology today on polyvagal theory and constructive conversations? I don't know. I don't think so. Oh, okay, no. yeah, I'll send it. It just came out yeah. this spring. I'll send that to you because it'll it'll go oh, into no, definitely not then. Yeah. Okay. So it explains more of this. One of the many reasons why I love polyvagal theory is the idea that Stephen Porges came up with the term neuroception. So just like you have eyes, ears, etc., that the nervous system itself is picking up on cues from the environment that are outside of conscious awareness. And it's not through our eyes or our ears or nose. And so it's the nervous system is constantly checking out the environment. Am I safe or am I in danger? Like we're on that continuum. And so if it perceives danger, then it'll activate and then the person will be in fight or flight. So combative or get out of dodge ASAP kind of mode. So anything and everything that we can do to send the message to the nervous system, you're safe, you're safe, etc. And so a couple other things that I think about are making sure your questions are genuine questions and not statements disguised as questions or leading questions. So the person feels controlled, like you're like dragging them by the nose to where you want them to go. And also if you've ever had, especially a supervisor who the way they ask questions, you felt like they should get out the the light and waterboard material because you're being interrogated as opposed to welcoming. I really want to understand questions like a simple example a verbiage. I remember working with a manager who, when he would say, so as an external consultant, he would say his position on something. I'm thinking like, oh, I don't think that's a great idea. Do I push back? Is he really wedded to it? And then he would say, but maybe I'm overthinking it. And as soon as he would say that, I'm like, thank you. He's not so attached to it that he's going to see me as the enemy if I disagree. So maybe I'm overthinking it or even like humor. Maybe that's just me. If you say a point of view, in fact, you said something, you said, I'm not always sure myself. And I love that because I think that's another cue of safety versus somebody who they're always so certain of their rightness. And especially if they're in a position of power, it's like, you know what? I'll just keep my mouth shut. You know, there's no sense dying on that hill. And so I love that you said that. It really shows open-mindedness. There's actually, there's this great and like eye-roll-worthy piece in Susan Cain's Quiet, The Power of Introversion in a World That Can't Stop stop Talking, where she talks about, she interviewed a bunch of students from Harvard's MBA program, and they shared about how they're coached to participate in class and how that's a huge part of your grade. And one of the coaching recommendations was always sound certain of your opinion. Even if you're only 55% sure you need to come across as your one, I know, 100%. Sure, isn't that? It's like, 
that's what's wrong <laughs> investor cold one of the many things so being genuine enough and modeling genuinity by not having to act like you know and even if you're certain be willing to say like who sees it differently because there's i'm sure there are things i'm not seeing so both the presentational style and then tacking on the verbiage that shows i don't think i've got this all buttoned up and that has to be aligned as well (laughs) Because if your body language is seeing different to what you're seeing, yeah, that's not going to work either. And I was doing leadership development recently, facilitating a course. And it's one of the things that after the first two days, somebody said, you know, they said, I never, ever thought about how the fact that how I'm speaking and how my body is could be almost in conflict with one another and that the other person then the messaging is so confused and I think if you have to deliver anything you have to believe it yourself you have to be invested in it yourself and if you're not that will come across too and I think that was the other thing maybe David with all the difficult conversations or the ones that were firing people or disciplinaries as long as I was sure, as I could be, given the what was in front of me, that this was necessary and warranted, then it was my job to do it. That's the way I used to look at it. And then I would do it to the best of my ability. But if I didn't believe or felt somebody was being set up or that this wasn't the right course of action, I wouldn't have been able to do that. Because it would have been obvious that I didn't believe it and then it would just be a disaster. So I think you you have to be true to yourself as well. You might only learn that by doing the thing as well. But then you have to be able to turn around and say, no, I'm not having that conversation because, which might be a difficult conversation as well. But how to end up in court very quickly, I would imagine, <laughs> is send somebody in to deliver a message that they don't believe that the other person picks up on and suddenly it all escalates out of control. Yeah, I think I lost my train of thought somewhere there. I'm, I'll, I'll just play off what I you lost said. The present moment. Maybe that will the trigger that, yeah, when the nonverbal disagrees with the verbal, the nonverbal wins. And then when you talked about needing to believe it yourself, it reminds me, one of my favorite quotes related to all this comes from the team now they change it to crucial learning so the crucial conversations etc folks where they one of i think it's a chapter in crucial conversations where they say get your story straight first and it's the story you tell yourself about the other person because if you think they're a big dummy a lazy lout etc doesn't matter your verbiage you know those vibes are going to come through so yeah Yeah, and I suppose so much goes on, doesn't it, under the hood, so to speak, that we're not conscious of. And we might think we delivered a great conversation because we're also disconnected from what our body's actually doing. But you could be sitting in a meeting like this and like almost physically backing away from the person. And I think, yeah, you you have to have awareness about yourself, your physical presence, as much as the words that are coming out of your mouth. 
And so maybe that might be a great place to start to wind this up in terms of like next steps for people. When you said that, that's makes me think of a great thing to do is maybe ask people that know you the best for feedback. When you're talking and I'm listening, do I come across as present? Do I come across as friendly? Because I know for myself, when I'm really listening, I know I can look like super intense. My sister sometimes teasing me. I look like a serial killer. So I have to like do the smile intense versus the serial killer look. <laughs> so like you say, we don't know how we come across because we're inside our skin. I'll just add one other like next step for people. And then whatever you want to say, another just simple thing that I ask people to do, like if I'm doing a workshop on psychological safety, is just notice your reaction to different people and notice people that you feel unguarded and you're willing to be vulnerable versus those who you're like, do I want to share this or not? And it's like, what is it about those two different groups? And then as you're having conversations, just notice remarks that like, that didn't feel really good. Or wow, I really like that they said, can you help me understand in a gentle tone of voice, as opposed to them immediately saying, that really bothered me when you, you know, it's like, oh, I got to do that. Can you help me understand thing? So any like next steps that you'd like to leave people with? Well, I think there's, there's a great book by Professor Mark Brackett, who is the head of emotional intelligence at Yale. And it's called Permission to Feel. And he has a few things in there that he uses, exercises that anyone can use to help you with this kind of stuff. But he has an acronym, RULER. So like a, a ruler, you know, I don't know if you, you call them rulers as well, don't you? I don't have one. A ruler. Yeah, ruler. ruler. Yes, ruler. Yep. Yeah. R-U-L-E-R. And R is for recognize. So recognize the emotion that you felt. U for understand, understand why you felt it. L for label, so give it the name that it is, actually label it. E for express, understand what is an appropriate expression of that emotion. And then R again for regulate. So once you get through all of those, you begin to learn how to regulate. And he also has an app actually, which I recommended to somebody not so long ago, and they wrote to me going, oh, my God, this was transformational because you can go into this app. I'll just look it up here when we're talking, but you can go into this app and you can ask it to to set it for twice a day. How we feel, it's called how we feel. So twice a day, it'll ask you at random times or you can give it specific times or five times a day or whatever, how you feel. And. It colors them blue, green, red, and yellow, I think. And so if you feel stressed, for example, it will give you some ideas of how to regulate that stress to come out of it. If you feel joyful, it even gives you more things to do to remain joyful. My emotional vocabulary and granularity has expanded so I find that there aren't enough words sometimes now to describe how I'm feeling, which is really interesting. But I think if you're starting off on this, recognizing more than anger, joy, sadness and whatever, that this is a great way to expand your vocabulary using an app like that. 
and it's got some cool tools that help people. Neat. Boy, I'm going to check that out. I love that ruler, especially the label and the, just that whole piece about how we label our emotions helps calm down the nervous system. And actually, it makes me think just one quick add on, and it relates to emotional self-regulation that we talked about before. A great modeling that I've had with a friend of mine is how typically, you know, that feeling when you're having a conversation with somebody, you could see they're getting defensive and neither you nor they talk about the defensiveness. You just keep talking about the issue and they're getting more and more defensive, more and more upset. And now you're getting defensive and upset and how instead of acting out being defensive, she would just say, I'm feeling defensive right now. She would just label it. And I was like, damn, check this out. Just the low key labeling it. I'm sure that helped calm down her nervous system and it helped me not get triggered versus her acting out the defensiveness. And now I'm appreciative, like she's not you know, getting on my case. She's just stating her emotional state. And now I'm curious about like, oh, like what's up? So that's maybe another like psychological safety tip for people is if you're feeling defensive or angry, do the L, label it versus act it out. And then if, if, if somebody is defensive like and it's not you you could also say to the other person i'm noticing something about you at the moment what's going on for you here and yeah. that also gives them a chance to just take a breath and and voice what it is not say to them you're coming across as very defensive because that's not going to work <laughs> but actually giving them a, a chance to say you're noticing something and it's that whole naming and noticing isn't it that person noticed and named their defensiveness but sometimes we can notice in a conversation and allow the other person to name or invite them to name yeah, man and this i love it and this is where many places where nuance comes in i love that where you you say what's going on for you so you're inviting them to share and then to me if you've ever had somebody who says you look really angry right now you know in this like gotcha caught you and how triggering that is versus it seems like you're upset so having that not so certain where the person doesn't have to defend against it. It's like, I see you and maybe I see something or not. I don't know. You're the expert. It's you. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such a fantastic point to end on, actually. You are the expert of you. No one else is. And how you're feeling matters. And understanding how you feel and how you're reacting and how you're responding matters. And the more you know about yourself, the greater the expert of you, you become. You've got it. And can bring your best self into the conversations. Well, thank you again for a fun, interesting conversation. Yes, David, it's always always thank you too and thank you for being present throughout likewise thank you so much for listening i hope you've enjoyed the paths we traversed on today's episode 
If something rang through for you, be sure to let me know. Or maybe you can share this with someone in your life who would benefit from listening too. And if you enjoy helping others, I'd be so grateful if you would leave a review so that people who might also be curious about their own life beyond the numbers can discover this podcast too.